Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hello and welcome to the win-win edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. By Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And very excitingly, in a confluence of fabulousness that no one could have really um, organized, it just worked out this way, this week, which is the best possible week for Anand Giridharas to come on this show is the week that Anand Giridharas has come on the show. It what? is a true win-win. <laughs> it is a true win-win. We are, we are blessed. Anand, you have a book out which we're going to talk about and we are also going to talk about the big things that we need to talk about this week, which one of which is obviously the big IPCC report on global climate change, which should be dominating all of the headlines all of the time. But given the news cycle seems to have been dominating like half of the headlines for about five minutes. Um, We are going to talk about this crazy Saudi situation and how big business is reacting to it. And all of this is directly relevant to your book, which you now get to plug. Is that the question? Yeah, tell That's us the, the name question. of the book. And, what, plug, plug the book. So the book is called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Um, and it's a book about how, trying to explain a paradox, which is that we live in this age of extraordinary elite generosity and rich people giving billions of dollars away and having social enterprises and philanthropy and Silicon Valley companies that are going to emancipate mankind. Um, and also those same rich people being predators. Uh, predators because they build, maintain, and uphold an economic system that predictably, reliably, in an ongoing way, siphons almost all of the gains from progress upward to them. So I wanted to have a big fight with you about this book because in all of the sort of boil-down TLDR versions of the book, I feel like it's horribly sort of you know, I, 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 every time I read it, I was like, no, 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 that's wrong. No, I need to, I need to fight with Anand about this. But then I have to say, this is one of the few books where it really helps to read the whole thing. And there's a big sort of what books are for. It's, I mean, <laughs> there was so many. You have no idea how many people we have on this show where you can more or less 
just read the subtitle and you get it. Wow. Am Wait, I wrong? I mean, it's Tell a little me insulting wrong. for all of the people who've been <laughs> on the podcast to plug yeah, their hey, books. Hey, former guests. <laughs> Na- naming no names. But subtweeting the hell out of everybody. Exactly. <laughs> go, go on, Felix. Um, but no, I, this is this is... This is one of those books which, I, you know, a very rare book, which actually caused me to change my mind on a few things. So, you know, well done on that. Um, I am what did it cause you to change your mind on? How That's... did you not agree from the start? I was like, finally, someone has exposed the ridiculous hypocrisy of these companies. Like, I've been, um, you know, a business journalist for a while at Huffington Post, and we get these press releases from Goldman Sachs about their, what is it called, the 1,000 Women Initiative? 10,000 Women. 10,000 women. Yeah. women Initiative. You're off please, by an order of magnitude there, Emily. It's still smaller than the number of women they caused to be foreclosed on by their role in the financial yes, crisis. Probably. they don't even hire women to work at the bank, hardly. Like, they, 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 they've appointed Dina Powell to their Global Governance Council, and it's such a good job she's not becoming the next U.S. ambassador The percentage the of women executives at Goldman Sachs, like is at all tiny. banks, is dismal. It um, is. So... I, I was, for one, uh, I was sold from the outset, but I'm curious why Felix wasn't. So, what, what was you, yeah, where were you going into it, and then what 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 are the so couple go, things okay, that changed so your mind? Okay, so like on? going I'm into curious. it, um, I was, I had a couple of issues. One of which, I mean, and the big one, which I think I probably still have, I can't agree with everything in the book, is that I feel like there's a bunch of people in this kind of win-win globalist jet-setting Davos and Bellagio and Aspen world that you quite elegantly fillet in this book, who have genuinely made the world a better place. Um, and And not all of them by any means, but some of them, I would include bizarrely someone like Bono, who realizes that the way you Sorry, I'm not do familiar. This, What's his last name? <laughs> the the way you do this, I believe it's Hewson, isn't it Hewson? I, I don't know. I think I think his name is Paul Hewson. <laughs> but the but the way you do this is that you pal around with like second and third tier ministers at big governments and you persuade them to do things like Gavi and the Global Fund, and then they wind up spending tens of billions of dollars eradicating AIDS in Africa. And you can't do that on your own, but you have the ability to influence, you know, governments because you're an international pop star, and you wind up making the world a genuinely better place. And that, and that is, I think, you know, one of the few areas where somewhere like Davos can actually claim, credibly claim a certain amount of credit. And how did it change your mind? Well, I mean, first of all, let's say, like, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that it changed my mind on that, but I do, I, I think it more changed my mind in just, like, how I look at the um, myopia of these conferences and how the stuff that they don't talk about is very important and the fact they don't talk about it is very important and they're very happy to talk about the global fund and gavi and they're very not happy to talk about certain other things which are equally important yeah i mean so a couple things there one the global fund and gavi are not the kinds of things that i'm really going after in this book i mean those are the kinds of things that actually do as you say work with government to some degree and work with actual systems to some degree. Um, and you're also right that there are many people 
among the global plutocratic superclass who do do good work and do save lives, as I say in the book, and do make people's, you know, do put roofs over homeless people's heads, et cetera, et cetera. The argument of the book is not a claim of absence. It's not a claim that no good work is being done, there are no decent rich people, and nothing is being changed. The argument of the book is when elites get into the game of changing the world, they are never happy to sit in the back row. They end up in important ways leading change. They end up sitting on the board of the organizations that drive change. They end up changing our collective conversation about change. They use their intellectual and pecuniary power to change words, to spread ideas, and defang change so that change is something that's less hostile to them. And that what you end up with is change that, yes, does in many cases help people. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. Um, save lives, etc. But change that ends up abetting harm on a much greater scale. So Goldman Sachs' 10,000 Women Program, which is not even a particularly worthy program among all the things out there, but it's real. Like, I, I have met some of the women who received mentorship and received loans. Like, they're real. They really did receive that. And I'm sure their lives got better. It would be, it would be hard to not make their lives better by you know, intervening in them in that way. But the idea is that if that Goldman 10,000 Women program is part of an ecosystem that allows Goldman to keep being Goldman in its day job, if the little bit of moonlight charity allows it by daylight to continue to build the kind of company that helped cause the financial crisis, got it to pay a $5 billion fine for causing millions of people to lose their, their homes and their livelihoods, um, then that making a difference becomes a kind of wingman of making a killing. But that's a big if, right? Like you I think the book exists to, to prove the if. But I mean, no, the if is, is, is that if the 10,000 women didn't exist, then Goldman would somehow be more constrained than it is right now in its rapacious capitalism. And I don't think you prove that. I think there are any number of rapacious financial institutions in the world who don't have 10,000 women programs and who are no less evil for it. They almost all have something. Wells Fargo has financial literacy to help people be protected from fraud. From the Wells kind of Fargo. fraud that Wells Fargo <laughs> perpetrated on its own customers. J.P. Morgan Chase uh, has, I think, some new urban revitalization thing to help America's cities recover from the financial crisis for which J.P. Morgan Chase paid maybe the largest fine of everybody for, for helping to cause. I don't think you'd actually find any bank of the kind you described that is not aggressively trying to create a reputation of helping. And in fact, there's an email, an amazing email from November 18th, 2007, in which the Goldman Sachs PR chief sent this email out to the leadership of the bank saying, big story coming in the New York Times tomorrow about how we managed to avoid the mortgage debacle for ourselves while our clients suffered, the exact act that would result in that $5 billion fine years later, the, 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 the core of their fraud. And he updated Lloyd Blankfein in this email with like five bullet points based on his conversations with this reporter and what he'd been trying to pitch the reporter. Bullet point number one, GS Gives is not in the story, right? They had tried they knew. So, so you may doubt that there's a relationship between the giving and the taking, 
But in that email, Goldman Sachs' PR chief was very clear that when a story about rapacious taking is coming, the most important thing you can do, bullet point number one, is try to squeeze a philanthropic sub-story into the main story. Fortunately, the reporter did not take the bait. So I, I'm going to be honest that I, I disagree a little bit with the idea that the system as such, like post-1980s to the present, has been a net bad for the world. I don't really think data totally supports that. I did, globally. but I, the book's not about the world. No, no, but I, I'm just saying that I think if you're looking at this, if you're saying that the argument that the good that some of these companies or people do is not justified because it's supporting a system that is creating so much harm. I, in America. In America, to a certain extent, although I would we don't need to have the whole argument, but I would maybe push back a little bit that if you look at what has happened since the 80s in the entire world, overall, there's been such a net gain that although we should have done quite a bit more in the United States, I don't necessarily think that means that what globalization has done is a bad thing. I but mean, you're, 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 I mean, I, I'm saying repeatedly for an important reason, this book is about America mm-hmm. and about America's elites relationship to the society the world has seen a huge reduction in poverty i mean in part because of two countries and in really one country which it's doesn't really china. vindicate it's not yeah i mean the, it's china has an overwhelming amount of it and china and india are both huge historical quirks because they had very bad systems for a while and neither of them is a clear case of letting capitalism in they did a lot of things in the last 30 40 years which are a mix of capitalism and authoritarianism and india doing the biggest affirmative action program in the history of the world it, those are not simple stories either but my book's not about that my book is about the fact the one percent in this country in the united states which is what i'm concerned with that since the 1980s has cornered most of the benefits of the future. And the data is very clear that the bottom half of Americans basically haven't gotten a raise since 1979. That's also like, it's not entirely, it's not that that stat has been kind of countered in many ways. I just want to say that. that So what's your stat? The stat that the CBO put out that has showed that actually, I mean, it's, it's, I would actually argue that the CBO stat could be too high, but they've shown that there has actually been it was a much more significant increase because they were using a different measure of inflation and they were also taking into account transfer payments and how far people's money can actually go. And the measure of inflation that's used in in the stat you're talking about, like the Fed doesn't even use, I mean, the CPI, they don't use that because it overcorrects for inflation. So I'm not arguing that everything's great in the United States. I'm not arguing. I actually think a lot of what your book, I agreed with a lot of your book. I think that we have move too far in the direction of saying that government can't do anything and that business should do everything. I'm only pushing back a little bit on the idea that what has happened since the 1980s has mostly been bad. I'm not entirely sure if that's accurate. And the only reason I bring that up is because I think it's important to remember that when trying to think, well, how can we move forward in having both business and government working effectively? Yeah, I think that's that's fair, but I'll, I'll tell you, as someone who was in eastern Ohio recently, was in Iowa recently, was in Idaho recently, when I travel to most parts of this country, you talk to most people about their lived experience of what's happening with your medical bills, like what's happening with your ability to get your kid the education you want. Um, it's not just one statistic about the bottom half of Americans not getting a raise. There's a lot of data of all kinds, um, human, um, you know, the kind of reporting that we have from books like The Unwinding, kind of that de- 
portraiture and various other kinds of work. Um, my my previous book was about you know the exurbs of Texas and worlds where basically social mobility is gone. Um, enormous parts of the population are on meth, and life has basically kind of vanished. And the the possibility of the future has vanished many people. So whatever your inflation number is, the reality is most Americans, um, I think on the left and right, experience correctly that this society feels rigged to them. It doesn't feel like it works in the way it used to. And that a few of us um, at the top have managed to corner most of the benefits of the extraordinary changes of the last but 30 or 40 can years. Can I just, you know... Then instead of talking about post-1980, talk a little bit about pre-1980. Right. Because I'm not convinced there was ever any kind of prelapsarian paradise. And I go all the way back to Alexander Hamilton and his kind of feelings of noblesse oblige and like how he had all of the answers for everyone and they should just kind of, their duty was to quietly elect him and then he would make sure everything was right for everyone. Obviously pre-1980 was not good for, you know, people of color. It was not good for women. It was not good for, like, huge swathes of the American population. And I'm not convinced that, you know, that there is, there ever was a period that, you know, pre-sort of win-win business-speak do-gooding that that was better than what we have now. I think one point that you make in your book that I thought was really fascinating was the way elites and a lot of Americans, too, have just abdicated from the public sphere entirely and retreated into their communities and how much this has hurt the United States. And while it's true that obviously people of color and women were excluded from the country from from its very founding, um, this retreat from the public, I think, has is a huge problem. It's this retreat from a civil society where we're all sharing in something. And I think that's sort of like epitomized right now with the Trump administration and something that you really dug into that be great if you could talk about more that is really, really hurting us. And I think is a change this like disbelief in in not only government, but in civil society and in public action. You know, I, I mean, I think to, to take both points, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that I, I, I think the short answer to your point is we were a lot worse on civil rights for both women and African-Americans and others um, 50 years ago. But at, in terms of class, we were in some ways better, right? And and right. you don't well, get to, you don't <laughs> yeah, get no, to I think pick that's true. some of the, you know, like to, the, just the collective bargaining power that a, a, a high school educated worker had was just in a very different place 50 years ago. And the CEO would today. live in the suburb Correct. with, which in gets, the same suburb as the workers. Which gets to Emily's point about connectedness, right? So, I mean, I think one of the major shifts in a globalizing world is the possibility of elite secession, right? And, you know, Obama talked about if you have um, software coding skills, you can sit anywhere in the world and work on a project in any other part of the world and, and, you know, for a company in some third part of the world. And you have a lot of leverage to, like, take the best deal. But if you're a home health aide you just don't have that secession possibility and you're kind of stuck, your bargaining powers, because you're kind of stuck where you are. Um, and that has become, I think, a truism for the economy in general. There's there's some people, they're not all plutocrats, they're just some people, you know, people with um, certain kinds of skills, often college-educated people who have 
had the ability to take advantage of the era we live in and who've been able to kind of float up and out of the place they are, if need be, and become part of this kind of global mesh of talent and opportunities and and project. And there's... They're the ones buying the bunkers in New Zealand we talked about a few weeks ago. Exactly. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. These are the people who all get invited to Davos in the Desert by Mohammed bin Sultan and... Someone. Someone. Sorry. <laughs> By, by Mohammed bin Salman. I like how you made him a Disney character. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of um, Jamal Khashoggi, is it? Something like that? Jamal Khashoggi, yeah. Khashoggi, who, you know, the Saudis can one day engage in extraterritorial, extrajudicial killing of journalists in Turkey, and then the next day expect all of global civil society um, from the presidents of the World Bank and Christine Lagarde from the IMF and all the way down to you know, the CEOs of Goldman Sachs and BlackRock and all the rest of it um, to come and sort of pay their respects to this great fount of cash. Should you sort of rewind and, and explain a little bit more about what you're talking about? Emily, what am I talking about here? So... Um so last week, um, a Washington Post journalist named, help me out, Hamal Hashogi, um, walked into the Saudi embassy in Turkey and never came out again. Um, and uh, as reporting surfaced in the past week or two, it's looking increasingly like he was essentially murdered by the Saudi government. Um, and the backdrop now becomes uh, the Saudi government is putting on this essentially as Felix said, Davos in the desert, this big um, innovation conference. It's like Davos, but even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in um, the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, um, the same Ritz-Carlton that the leader of Saudi Arabia used to imprison his political enemies, is going to house um, the CEO of, is going to house Jamie Diamond, and um, until recently, the CEO of Uber and all these like fancy Davo, the Davos set that Anand writes um, so well about in his book. And um, as the new surface of, of this man's killing and apparently a bone saw was used to dismember his body and then it was removed from the embassy, according to reporting um, from The Washington Post mainly, it, this has been embarrassing for the global elite. I mean, they don't want to be associated with this. And um, they've been pulling out um, yet on Thursday and Friday this week. They've been a lot of them have been saying, oh, we won't go. We're so shocked by this. But of course, it, it shouldn't be shocking because this isn't the first time the leader of Saudi Arabia has been caught doing some nasty stuff. So Saudi Arabia has you know, never exactly been a paragon of human rights <laughs> abuses. And yeah, so what like what so the f question I have for you Anand is is like did it really require the assassination of a member of the global elite of like a high profile Washington Post columnist to like bring home to the world just how sort of you know bad brutal. the Saudi and brutal the Saudi regime is. I mean, well first of all, it's not clear to me 
that it has brought brought home to most of them. I mean, the people most who are pulled are out going. are a minority. Yes, of the people who, as of this morning, the guy's been gone more than a week. As of this morning, we're still listed on the website. These are all powerful people who have the ability to get their name off a website, I would imagine. Um, and many of whom had not even made their own Twitter announcements or whatever. So to be clear, uh, even everything we know, bone saw and all, has not been sufficient for most people to, to, to disavow um, this. I, I have been in conversation, for example, with, with uh, Dara's spokesman at Uber since um, I ran into him uh, on Wednesday in Los Angeles and it took until late last night um, to get, uh, you know, just to pull out from the conference. I also then followed up and saying, are you willing to also return the massive Saudi stake in Uber? I have not gotten a response uh, to that. And, and tell what Uber's slogan is. It's a new slogan under Dara. The new one is do the right thing. Period. We do the right thing. Comma, period. period. Yes. <laughs> Comma, period. Yeah. I mean, it just exposes, I think, what. Anand wrote about, which is that these companies want to have it both ways. They want to say, we do the right thing, period. And then they go out and they kind of do the wrong thing unless they're publicly called out and essentially harassed by a lot of journalists, which is what happened to Uber, which is why they pulled out. And I think Mohammed bin Salman is an interesting example of almost him. He seems to be kind of modeling himself on this, you know, being a global elite and on the one hand trying to say, oh, well, you know, I'm allowing women to drive. But on the other hand, arresting all of the female activists who are pushing to get driving. And (laughs) And, and then when the Canadian foreign minister points that out, as we mentioned in a previous episode of this show, he goes batshit and like pulls all Saudi students out of Canada and and like ends diplomatic relations just for sort of saying, hey, you shouldn't jail these people. (laughs) I just want to point out also that they let women drive around the exact same time that through SoftBank they were making an investment in Cruise, a driverless car technology. It's like they decided women could drive once they concluded that driving itself was going to be eliminated. It's like big banks hiring more female tellers while at the same time, like opening tons of ATMs and closing down. (laughs) So the question I have, though, is like, you know, this this is the second year of the conference. The first year of the conference, you know, we, we, we get to see all of these bigwigs floating around and, and basically trying to catch some of the money that um, MBS is throwing out of helicopters these days um, with this massive Saudi finance war in Yemen going on in the background with millions of people in um, poverty and dying of hunger and just dying, period, and it was you know unedifying to say the least but we didn't see this kind of level of peer pressure among the davos set to get each other to sort of pull out and now it's like one one guy dies and and suddenly everything changes i'm interested in that dynamic i mean i think it's partly that he's a global elite i think to be honest it's the you know the well known psychological research on just like one story is easier to absorb than 16,000 deaths in Yemen, which is just kind of more one of the sad facts of the world. Um, that boy in, you know, Alan Kurdi and the the Syrian boy on that beach was not a global elite, but he got the world's hearts in a way that, I don't know, 50 million people on the loose as refugees around the world just hadn't. Um, so there's just, that's, I think, something just about how we process story. And I think that's actually fine because... What is happening here 
it, you know, I, I've as a writer, I've always been very. Um, I try to be non-judgmental about like how people learn. People learn the way they learn, and you gotta like understand that. And the reality is, um, Jamal's death may become a spur for a lot of people to use a business term to right-size their relationship with Saudi Arabia to actually ask deeper questions about what their relationship to Saudi Arabia should have been all along, given what they knew, what they knew and had reason to know, but didn't, but ignored. Okay, fine. But now you have a story that is unignorable, um, that frankly is a journalist being potentially assassinated, which just has a particular emotive power to it. Um, in an age where we're told journalists are enemies of the people here in our own country by, you know, one of the, the, the Saudis great, um, hoteliers, Donald Trump. Um, and I think hopefully this will be a moment to frankly end the the toxic, abusive relationship that the United States has had with Saudi Arabia for a very, very long time. I also feel like what's going on with Saudi Arabia, again, relates back to your book, because while these companies are, I guess, being prodded, at least some of them um, to scale back their relationships or take another look, like you were saying, our president and his son-in-law aren't condemning this. You know, they're being very careful. Donald Trump even said something yesterday like, well, we wouldn't want to damage our relationship with Saudi Arabia because of the $10 billion. $110 billion. $110 billion they're spending um, on weapons. And it's like this, there's an abdication from the White House here. And what's left to fill the void are these companies, which at the end of the day, they'll respond to public pressure, but they're not going to make any real substantive changes that you need the public you need the government to step in and set an example and we're really seeing a vacuum and and rushing into this vacuum are like the uber ceo you know and this is actually you have an op-ed in the new york times basically saying you know that the um CEOs of all of these global companies and especially American companies should do this sort of performative virtue signaling and not go to Saudi Arabia and I completely... And return all of the billions of dollars well, you, in that, you know, I'm not sure that's legal <laughs> but, um, but the uh, I mean, but, the, but the fact is that there is always a way, Felix. If the money, if the money, if you if you say that the money was fraudulent, it's t- I mean, there's always a way. But the, you can find like, replacement but, investors. You can buy them out. Like there's okay. always a way. That money should not be in this country. Um, but I do see a certain tension there. I mean, you're 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 basically calling on the global business elite to come together and collectively make the world a better place. Which is like exactly what your book is. No. No. What I am arguing is that the more useful thing to do, what what, what these people do, exactly as you said, Emily, is, is play a double game. They create harm on a massive scale. And then they often do good works that fail to match up to the harm they caused. And my argument is for them to spend less time trying to do good and more time trying to just not do harm first. Keep your and house so, in order. And so what I am calling for is not the global elite coming together to do good. I'm calling for them to just stop doing harm. They have done harm by accepting money that is clearly designed as part of a reputation laundering campaign for their for their companies. They have done harm by trying to gin up business um, and lending their legitimacy as speakers and quote-unquote thought leaders by going to this conference. I want the global business elite not to be in charge of change at all but i just want them to stuff like like the hippocratic oath first do no harm 
and then let us, as a public, do the public good. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, let's talk about the public good here because um, in 2040, the climate is going to be 1.5 degrees warmer than it was in pre-industrial times. And the International Panel on Climate Change recently came out with a massive report, which I have actually read a large chunk of, um, talking about the literally hundreds of millions of lives that are going to be devastated as a result and urging the international community, insofar as this such a thing exists, to come together and, as Anand says, do no harm, to stop belching carbon into the atmosphere and to try and prevent this thing from happening. It's difficult, but it is possible. It will wind up saving um, hundreds of trillions of dollars. If we do nothing, according to one report that I was just reading, um, by 2100, the present value of the damages that are going to happen is over $500 trillion. That's basically the entire wealth of the planet today. So here's a collective action problem for you, Anand. Like, tell me what your reaction was to this. I mean, it's devastating. And, you know, I think some of what you were getting at earlier with this idea of well, the world has improved, even if things are not better for most people in America. And that's true, and the poverty reduction numbers, et cetera, are impressive. But this is also the first time in human history that we've managed to put the very status of the planet in peril through our actions. Uh, all those other people who, you know, had um, had more unequal and cruel just like in the Middle Ages, whatever, like managed to not jeopardize the planet. and we've And we have that huge achievement. Um, and, and, and just the idea, I mean, when you say we may wipe out an amount of wealth that's equivalent to all the wealth now, and we're, you're basically talking about resetting civilization. Like we're taught, we have, we have gotten ourselves to the precipice in, in earth time of like undoing this whole thing. And that's insane. And I think a lot of it, again, grows out of what I think about as an economy that is so, and societies that are so centered on the profit motive that you know, we we know what causes this. We know who causes this. We know various tax measures and others that could at least make some difference. And we just haven't done it because those companies, the Exxons of the world, um, have so much power. And I just want to share one anecdote, which I think gets at 
the fact that it's not just the carbon belchers who are to blame, the Saudis and the Exxons and, and whatever, but all of us enable this culture that, that protects these people, the, the bad actors, in the following way. You know, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, has famously become this kind of avatar of conscious capitalism, ethical. He's capitalism going to Riyadh. Must, <laughs> yeah, of course he is. Of course he is. Well, we'll see. Go on. You know, um, and, and he's kind of become, you know, company, he, he made this very threatening, almost like benign mafioso claim that, you know, companies don't have a purpose, social purpose in the future. BlackRock may not, in, you know, which may not invest in you, which is like a pretty earth shattering thing for BlackRock to say because they're the biggest asset managers in the world. And what was revealed when I did some digging, re and, and then he was asked on the strength of that reputation to give a, a lecture on the climate to the UN in September during UNGA week. Wow, great. A lecture on the climate. I mean, CEO lecturing the UN on how to fight climate change. Awesome. Sustainable development, et cetera. Well, it turns out while he was prepping for that speech this year and, and cementing this reputation, um, BlackRock was buying 4 million additional Exxon shares in that very time. Not something that it bought 30 years ago. In this time. And this is the problem. The UN still invites him, right? People still listen to him. We still think of him as someone who's trying to make the world a better place and fight for sustainable development. So we are all involved in a validation of phony change agents that is a part of the story of why issues like this get as bad as they do. Yeah, we've, we've abdicated leadership to people whose highest purpose is making a profit and the whole world is burning down in the meantime. It is... It, it is so upsetting and depressing to watch this unfold and feel powerless to change it. And then see um, right after the IPCC report came out, I think it was CNN, but it might have been another media outlet tweeted something like feeling depressed about the climate news. Here are some things you can do. And it was like, buy smart appliances, <laughs> <laughs> take the bus. And it's just it's such a well. I, and I think this is important because I think. When numbers like this come out and stats like this come out, it's very easy for people to just be like, I guess we're screwed because it's it it's very hard to look at that and see any possible steps towards making things better. But I do think it's important to look at what organizations like the EPA have actually done historically to reduce other types of emissions significantly and to suggest that if we have strong government agencies in many different countries that can do things like like real you know, carbon taxing. Well, I mean, carbon it, taxing is the number one right. thing which needs to happen in order for any change to happen here. And like, I've been looking at the numbers. I, I, I'll, I'll plug my my Axios Edge newsletter because I go into this a bunch in this this week's episode. Um, but the ranges of carbon tax that you need to avoid getting to one point five um, are minimum, sort of. A hundred to two hundred dollars a ton. Some of the estimates go up to as much as like twenty five thousand mm -hmm. dollars a ton. You know, like insofar as there is carbon pricing going on anywhere in the world, it's floating around what ten, twelve, fifteen, sometimes twenty or thirty dollars a ton. That's not going to do it. And you need if you're if you're going to keep carbon taxes at like those kind of levels, which even that is politically impossible in the United States. And by the way, would seriously hurt 
the poorest Americans in the South because they're the ones who have the most carbon-intensive energy. Um, even if you do that, you know, you then need to do a whole bunch of other stuff like making a global pact to build zero more coal-fired power stations. And all of these things which are to a first glance like basically politically impossible and, and this I, is where the globalists surely have a point right the, yeah. this stuff cannot be done on a nation by nation basis you can only do it at a, at a sort of global level i'm not against doing things at a global level i'm against private sector people taking over the pursuit of right. solving the problems they caused but I, but I, but i i want when i'm listening to you and I, I think part of it is yeah the solutions are hard but i want to make a cultural point which is this could be really exciting Right. This could be, you know, like in could the be like way the moonshot, right? Correct. In the way that like in many ways wars are experienced as in real time as like this challenge that the country has to go save the world, right? The way World War Two is remembered in this country. This is a challenge on that scale. I mean, this will kill way more people than World War Two killed if some of the worst estimates are true. And there's also been a failure of us to, and maybe even of the people who are raising these alarms, I think to make this issue not just serious and grave, but exciting, thrilling to like, this This is an all hands on deck thing. Every school should be teaching according to this. Like we need more pop culture dealing with this. Like when I read about this issue, it's never, I don't know, it's just not the best books. It's not, I think there's a cultural problem here of like the direness of this is not matched by the frankly, storytelling it's going to take to make the kinds of changes you talked about remotely possible. This needs to be as live in our minds as the Great Depression was if you were living in the Great Depression or as World War II was if you were living in World War II or as the Civil War. Like, unignorable, the thing everybody's thinking about every day, but that doesn't have to be awful. That can be, like, we're all working on this. We're all inventing things. We're all like thinking about how to help companies have new business, all of it. We're doing new regulation. We're figuring out carbon taxes. We're building movements. But it needs to be on that scale. And right now it feels like one out of 18 issues in our lives. And and the least personally germane, one of the great themes of your book is that like the normal voter who doesn't have three passports and visit 12 countries a year, like cares about their local community and sure you know they'll have the occasional hurricane or something but like it's it's not directly affecting them and they do see the people complaining about this thing as the al gores of the world these gazillionaires who but it, like but again it. It, i think this is also a problem with you know with all respect to those who are pushing this issue like it, we always leave this 1.5 degree that is really it's a really bad mm -hmm. talking point it totally is. <laughs> no, it doesn't you hear seem 1. like a big deal. Degrees. Correct. <laughs> you know, like, we need to make this personal for people. When you're in West Virginia, you got to talk about black lung. And you have to talk about, like, what's happening in their lives, how that's affected their communities. When you're talking in Bangladesh, you got to talk about flooding. You know, you have to talk about hurricanes in the coastal south of this country and talk about what would it look like to live in an America in which this was happening to you, like, once a week and you had to like reboard your house and like what are other futures that are possible like we have to talk about if people are not going to do some of these you know oil and coal jobs that are causing this problem like what is their identity in the new economy that's coming that i think probably feels like less masculine to them and like 
you know, future of like recycling and wind energy, like doesn't maybe like make a lot of those people feel the power they felt around like being on an oil rig or in the mine. We got like help them migrate psychologically. This is a massive challenge that I think, frankly, has been um, mismanaged by those who understand it primarily as a data and policy problem. This is like, I think this is truly, when you think about like the abolition movement, right? Like there was a policy component, there ended up being a war component, but a big part of it was a persuasion component. Trying to persuade people who didn't like slavery to really not like it. Trying to persuade slaves to take power. Trying to persuade slave owners to maybe some of them realize that they were actually enfeebling themselves by living atop this order. Like, all of the above. And we're not really living amid a climate campaign that is anything like that. And I think we have to be. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. It all, it's always storytelling. As, as, as a journalist, I 100% believe in this. Um, Anand, you brought a number. I did. For the numbers round. I did. What's your number? 82% of all new wealth generated just last year went to the global 1%, top 1%. And what this means is we are not dealing with the legacy of historical injustices. We're not dealing with things that were bad a while ago, but at least are broadly getting better in the world. 82% of what was built last year still is being cornered by the very people who tell us they're changing the world, making it a better place and giving back. They are taking on a scale that their giving can never equal and we need to frankly take power back from them. My number is $85, which is the amount of money that will go to the World Food Program if you buy a nylon fanny pack for $850 from Balenciaga. Um, the other $765, my mathematics is not very good, all goes to Balenciaga, of course. But hey, we're, we're giving back. I will also mention that the total World Food Program contributions in 2017 were somewhere north of $6.8 billion, overwhelmingly from governments. This is a good international government program where private sector contributions are not a big deal. But hey, you know, we can sort of piggyback on that with our $850 fanny pack. And yeah. Uh, okay, my number is $1.4 billion. That is allegedly the valuation. Well, that's the valuation reported by the Wall Street Journal of a shoe company called Allbirds, which is like, um, it's the footwear of Silicon Valley. Allbirds has become Allbirds. a unicorn yeah. now? Yes, and oh, they dear. just got $50 million in funding based on this $1.5 billion valuation. And um, <laughs> Quartz described the sneakers as essentially fleece vests for your feet, which I thought was funny. And, um, and in the story in the journal, 
Um, what was sort of funny about this to me is that they want to be seeing Allbirds as a, a tech company. So the, the one of the co-founders literally said, we've never even thought of ourselves as a shoe company. We are focused on delivering comfort in an elevated way. Oh, <laughs> by the way, 50 they sell million. Shoes, that's all they do. They're making the feet a better place. Yeah. $50 million is um, the median VC investment these days. That's like, wow. that is now absolutely normal. So my number is 13. As in, uh, Pakistan is asking for their 13th IMF bailout. Um, so, which suggests what happened with all the other ones. Um, and what to me is actually especially interesting about this is a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it is just your normal balance of payments crisis, but it also has to do with Chinese debt. And with importing a lot of very expensive equipment from China to make a lot of the infrastructure payments that are being paid for with Chinese debt. And so I think this is interesting as maybe a first indication of what we could see with the Belt and Road Initiative of where this might not um, end so well. So basically what's happened is that Pakistan borrowed a whole bunch of money from China in order to buy Chinese equipment to build its own infrastructure. Now it has now it owes so much money to China that it needs to borrow money from the IMF in order to repay China. That's part of it, yep. What could possibly go wrong? Um, okay, on which note, I think we will wrap this amazing episode of Slate Money up. Thank you for listening. Um, Thank you to Max Jacobs for producing. Keep the emails coming on slatemoney at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. 